You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is Isaiah 17. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephraim. Gleanings will be left in it, as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants, And so the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. And at evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Before we uh, look into the book of Isaiah, uh, I got a couple announcements for you. And the first concerns uh, sort of a subtle change in language around here that we're going to engage in as a result of Steve Timmis being here last week. So basically what we're going to do over the course of the next season of time is you're going to hear us refer more and more to gospel communities rather than missional communities. And I want to explain the reason for that little shift in how we talk about uh, our structures here at Quormdale. So if you've been around... You know that we gather on Sundays and we as a church scatter during the week into 40 missional communities throughout the city. And each of those communities is a gathering of people, um, a core group of Christians, oftentimes some non-Christians or some skeptics or some people uh, from the neighborhood uh, who are interested in seeing and learning and understanding who God is. And the purpose of each of those little communities is to, to live on mission together in a particular part of the city, to see God make disciples and to see God bless the city in His name through that gathering of people. Um, since the beginning, we've referred to those as missional communities. And over the course of the past few years, we've been sort of thinking about, is that the best language for them? And um, here's what Steve Timmis said last week when he was here. 
It was a simple statement, but it sort of was one of those, oh yeah, that's, that's really helpful. He said, when someone asks me what a missional community is, I have to take them to the dictionary in order to answer their question. But when someone asks me what a gospel community is, I can just take them to the Bible to answer that question. And so we call them gospel communities. And um, th- that was more than just sort of a, a trick or a turn of language. It actually really reinforced what we've been sensing and feeling for some time, which is that we really want the gospel to be the heart of everything we do at Quorum Deo, including every one of our communities. And sometimes what happens is because we call them missional communities and because they're united around a defined and shared mission, the mission sort of begins to take center stage. And knowingly or unknowingly, the gospel gets eclipsed. And that's unfortunate because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that anchors our mission and and gives us, in a sense, direction and clarity on what it is that we exist to be and to do. So you're going to begin to hear us talk more and more about gospel communities. It's not like we're going to do some major rebranding or some huge relaunch of anything. We're just going to change how we talk a little bit. I wanted you guys to know that, that you'll hear them referred to more and more as missional communities as we, or as gospel communities as we go forward. There you go. It's going to take a while. It's been nine years of language that needs to get shifted. So it will take some time for that change to sort of stick. But my second announcement is that in light of that, uh, we're actually launching a new gospel community this summer for middle school and high school students. Um, so if you're in sort of the 12 to 18 age range, we're over the summer launching a missional community, a gospel community that intends to uh, help you become a better disciple of Jesus and help you meet and get to know some of the other people in the church who are in that same age range and seeking to live on mission with Jesus in their schools and in their sports teams and their relationships. And so um, that's going to be sort of a pilot, a test missional community over the summer. And I want to make that known to you, and here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you are a parent or a student uh, in that age range, so if you have kids in that age range or if you're in that age range, would you go this morning out to the um, connection desk and look for my friend Katie? This is what she looks like. We'll put her picture up there. So she's one of the ones who's helping to oversee this gospel community over the summer. Uh, Just let Katie know that you exist, and here's my contact info so that we can get you the information, all right? Because what we've found is a lot of the students in that age range in our church they're around on Sunday mornings, but uh, we don't exactly know where they are during the week and how to connect, and if you're a parent, how you want to be connected with, and so do that. There's also a little card that explains when and where that community is meeting, and uh, so we'd love to connect you with that if you're in that age range, all right? It is Memorial Day weekend. It is the beginning of summer, even though you can't really tell this morning, and it's also the beginning of a new season in our study of the book of Isaiah. So we've been all year making our way through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And we're launching into sort of a new subset of that book this morning. Uh, Chapters 1 through 12 focused on God as the holy judge. Uh, Chapters 13 through 39, this next section, focus on the theme of God as the sovereign king. This is not a new theme, it's something Isaiah has already been talking about, but now he sort of brings this to center stage, and and you're going to hear all summer about the theme of the sovereignty of God, because that is very much the central idea in this section of the book of Isaiah. If you've joined us during the year, um, there's a study guide that we're using as a means of prayer and reflection throughout the week, and these are available this morning at the resource table. We initially ran out back in January. We've printed some more copies, and so if you've joined us along the way, this is helpful during the week to help you pray and think and reflect on the things we're talking about. 
So this morning, as we launch into this sort of new section, the Sovereign King, the second set of chapters in the book of Isaiah, I have a significant task before me, which is I'm going to preach this morning on eight chapters of this book in one sermon. Okay, and that's a formidable task. And so what I want to begin by doing is to sort of give you the 30,000-foot view of these eight chapters, chapters 13 through 20. So let's fly over these chapters and observe what they're about. The reason we're taking them all in one chunk is because they're eight chapters that essentially say the same thing and apply it in different ways to different settings. And so we sort of want to take those chapters as a chunk and understand their message to us as a whole. So for instance... The best way to understand these chapters is to just look at the first verse of each chapter. So chapter 13, verse 1 says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, An oracle concerning Moab. Chapter 19, verse 1, An oracle concerning Egypt. These chapters are a series of oracles or prophetic speeches addressed to the nations of the ancient Near East. There are five oracles in total, and there are five nations or people groups that are addressed. First of all, Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, then Philistia at the end of chapter 14, Moab in 15 and 16, Damascus and Israel in 17 and 18, and Egypt in 19 and 20. Do you ever feel as a Christian like you're surrounded by non-Christians? Do you ever feel like your whole life is lived surrounded by people who don't worship the God that you do, don't see the world the way that you do, don't think in and respond to life in the ways that you do? Do you ever feel pressed on all sides by an unbelieving world? That's exactly the situation Isaiah's audience was in. I brought along this morning a map so that you can see the scope of who's discussed in this section of Isaiah. What you'll see on this map is that that little white box is around the city of Jerusalem in the center. So here's what I want you to notice. To the north, where the Assyrian Empire is on this map and beyond, was the nation of Babylon. To the west is Philistia. To the east is Moab, and to the south is Egypt. These are all the nations that God speaks to in this section of Isaiah. You see, the people of God are surrounded by unbelievers. They are pressed on all sides by the world, and yet they are central to God's purposes in the world. And so this is the literary beauty of Isaiah. Essentially what what God does here is He just goes around the compass. He speaks a word to all the nations around God's people and to God's people in the midst of those nations. And essentially what He's saying is, you're at the center of my purposes in the world. But here's the question. Will you influence them? Or will they influence you? That's the, the broad overview of these eight chapters, God speaking oracles, words to the nations around his people in the time that Isaiah is writing. Now let's come down from 30,000 feet and, and read a few passages to get a sense of the tone of these oracles, the things that God says 
to these nations. Let's begin in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17. This is a word of God to Babylon. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It's a word of judgment against the kingdom of Babylon. I flip over to chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. A word that God speaks to Moab, which is to the east of the land of Judah. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab, let everyone wail. A word of judgment against Moab. Flip over now to chapter 19 and verse 1. We read by way of introduction to the chapter, an oracle concerning Egypt. And then here's the beginning of the oracle. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. As you can see from these sort of brief looks into the text, these oracles are oracles of judgment. They are words of judgment on these nations. God is judging their pride, their selfishness, their idolatry. You see, God judges individuals at the end of time, but He judges nations in time. He's saying, here's what's going to happen to these nations, to these political entities, to these empires. The main point, the the key idea in this section of Isaiah, in these eight chapters that we're looking at this morning, the thing that's repeated over and over again, the point Isaiah is trying trying to drive home to everyone who's listening is this. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. That's the point. God is sovereign over every nation, every people, every empire, every entity. That was true in Isaiah's day. That is true in our day. God is in control. He is sovereign over the world He has made and over the nations within it. And it's important you understand, God's sovereignty is not a narrow sovereignty. God is not a puppeteer up in heaven pulling the strings, making people do this and that so that his purposes get worked out. Rather, God's sovereignty is a broad and a mysterious and a majestic sovereignty that takes into account the discreet actions of rational actors within the world and that accomplishes within those choices and decisions God's grand purposes in redemption. God is majestically, worshipfully sovereign. He's working out His purposes in the world. And it's important that you understand and see this morning that 
the idea that God is sovereign is not intended to be some abstract theological truth that sort of hangs out here in midair, that you file away in your theological categories. What it means is that God is moving all of history toward a goal. God, the grand author of everything, is writing a story of redemption, and He's the one moving the story forward. The sovereignty of God ultimately takes us to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's sovereignty in Isaiah's day is God working the story in the direction of, toward the coming of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereign work in our day is working out the implications of the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the sovereignty of God brings us directly to the cross of Jesus as the center point of history and the center of the story. Look, for instance, at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. This is a sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He says to his audience, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, catch this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you catch what Peter did right there? He's talking about the death the crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here's what he said to his audience. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this happened. And you did it. Peter has no need to oppose divine, responsi- or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He does not see these as opposites that don't coexist in the world. What he says is, God ordained this from the beginning of time, and you did it. Your actions resulted in Jesus being crucified, but it was God's definitive plan. The sovereignty of God does not work against or instead of human responsibility, but over and with human responsibility. God's judging of these nations in Isaiah in the text that we're considering this morning, is like a big arrow pointing us forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the sovereignty of God means God will accomplish His purposes in the world. The good news of the gospel is, listen, God's purposes in the world are not going to be frustrated. They're not going to be defeated. God is working all of history according to His plan and purpose There's a story he's writing, and his plan, his vision, his purposes will be accomplished. God will redeem a people for himself. God will forgive all of our sins in Christ. That's what makes the sovereignty of God such a worshipful doctrine, because it means our redemption is not an accident. Our redemption is not a random fact Rather, our redemption, our being caught up in the purposes of God is part of God's divine strategy to remake the world. 
Aren't you glad that you and I are not random accidents in a purposeless universe? Rather, we are people loved by God, for whom God sent His Son. The sovereignty of God is good news. It's part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. Do you believe that God is sovereign over history? Do you believe the good news that Isaiah is preaching to you this morning? I don't mean do you, can you see how this could be true in a Christian worldview and how this could make sense, but rather, do you believe this to be true? Has this gotten down inside of you to where this begins to define how you think about reality? Have you embraced this truth, not as something out there to be understood, but as something to be taken in and believed and rested in? When you believe, when you rest in the good news that God is sovereign over history, and that in His Son, in the the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we see His sovereignty most clearly. When When you rest in that, It changes you. We often say here at Quorum Deo that we want to be a people who believe the gospel and live out its implications. In other words, that that belief is not for us some intellectual category or some eternity category, but, but that it changes us now. That's what it means to believe the gospel is that your life is different now because of the reality of what God has done in Christ. And my friends, the the truth that Isaiah is putting before us this morning, the great truth of the sovereignty of God is one of those things that you and I must embrace and that we must take in and that when we embrace it and take it in, it changes us. The the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, uses this truth from God to, to reorient how we think about reality. I want to show you three implications in this text of this great truth. So realize, Isaiah is saying to you, God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over Babylon and Moab and Damascus and Egypt and Israel and Judah and the entire ancient Near East. God is sovereign over all of this. That's the main point that Isaiah is making. But as he makes that point, he works out the implications of that. Here's what that means for you, people of God. Let's consider three implications of this great truth. Or to say it another way, God is sovereign over history, so what? So what? Who cares? What what difference does that make in your life? Here are three implications that Isaiah gives us. Number one, because God is sovereign over history, no one is getting away with anything. Therefore, we can be forgiven. So so I want to connect the dots for you here. God's sovereignty over history means no one is getting away with anything. Which is why it's possible for the people of God to be forgiven. Let me show you, first of all, from the text, no one is getting away with anything. That may seem intuitively obvious to you, but it makes sense for us to see it in the Bible, right? Right? Isaiah 13, chapter 9. Again, God's word to Babylon, 
which is um, an idolatrous people, an oppressive people, one of the powers in the world that consistently is opposing the people of God. In fact, Babylon in the Bible is an image for the unbelieving world, the world system as opposed to the kingdom of God. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Do you see what God's saying here? Hey, you're not getting away with anything. I'm going to, he says, punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. That's good news because it means the people who have sinned against you are going to get punished. And it's bad news because it also means you're going to get punished for the sins you've committed against others. The whole world is called to account before God. No one's getting away with anything. Likewise, look at chapter 14, verse 4, which is good news for all those who are experiencing oppression and injustice. All the people in all the places in the world who are subjugated because of the violent will of some oppressing power. God says how the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. No oppressor, no evil power, No ruler who rules the people with unceasing blows. No one's getting away with anything. The whole world is accountable before God. Why? Because God is sovereign over history. And here's what that means for us. It means we can forgive. It means that you and I can be free from vengeance, retribution, despair, fantasizing about how our enemies should get theirs, all of that. We can be free from that because God is sovereign over history. Let me try to make the connection more explicit by appealing to one who's thought much more deeply on these matters. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale. His heritage is ethnically Croatian. And as you know, perhaps in the 1990s, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, all the republics of the former Yugoslavia was a place of dramatic genocide and ethnic cleansing. And so Miroslav Volf watched as his friends and family members and citizens of his nation were slaughtered, killed, done away with. And he reasoned through, as a Christian theologian, the complexity of how do you forgive something like that? What does forgiveness look like when what you're forgiving is not, this person hurt my feelings, but rather, this person killed my family? Let's not talk about the the simple aspects of forgiveness. Let's go right to the heart of the difficulty of human forgiveness. As Miroslav Volf as a Christian theologian reasoned through his own experience, 
he realized this. The only way to forgive is if you believe in a day of judgment and in a God who judges sin. Apart from that, you will never be able to forgive. The only way you can forgive someone who's wronged you is if you know that wrong is going to be dealt with at the end of time in the final judgment. And if there is no final judgment and there's no God who makes things right, then you'd be crazy to forgive. What you should do is make it right now by getting revenge, which is exactly the cycle of violence in the world, isn't it? The oppressed sooner or later become the oppressors. Those who have been subjugated sooner or later become the subjugators. Listen to Miroslav Volf's own words. To the person who is inclined to dismiss the belief in divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe in God's refusal to judge. If God were not angry at injustice, God would not be worthy of our worship. He goes on to say, the certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. In other words, the only way I can give up my right to demand payment now for the ways people have wronged me is if at the end of time, God will justly sort out good from evil. And the fact that He will makes it possible for Christians to forgive. If you do not believe that God will judge at the end of time, you will find yourself unable to forgive now. Because listen to me, forgiveness is not pretending that it didn't happen. Forgiveness is acknowledging that it did happen and that it was wrong and that you are referring the justice for what has been done to a higher authority. It's not ignoring justice. It's saying, I can defer justice and refer justice to God who judges justly and therefore forgive one who doesn't deserve forgiveness. This is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, isn't it? You're the one who's guilty for the sins you've committed, but because God took out His judgment for sin on Christ... He doesn't just forgive you because he's nice and there's no cost to your sin. He forgives you by taking out the justice for your sin on another. Likewise, the only way you forgive is if justice is referred to God and he's the one who will judge justly at the end of time. Because God is sovereign over history, what that means is no one's getting away with anything. Therefore, you and I can forgive. Those who trust in a sovereign God ought to be a radically forgiving people. We have within the nature of God the resources to truly forgive people who have wronged us. 
Here's the second implication of this massive truth. Because God is sovereign over history, there's a purpose for everything. Which means we can be hopeful. Because God is sovereign over history, there's a purpose for everything. Therefore, we can have hope. Isaiah 14, verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God's saying, I've decreed these things, I've purposed these things, I'm going to do this, and no one will annul my purpose. Likewise, chapter 19, verse 12. Speaking to Egypt, God says, Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. We see this language of purposing, of planning, of God having clear intentions in the world. Because God is sovereign over history, there's a purpose in everything. That doesn't mean that we know what the purpose is, which is what we would like, right? We're not content to know that God has a purpose. What we want is to know what his purpose is because then we wouldn't have to trust him, right? We would just know. Here's how William Cooper, the English poet, put it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. A much more poetic and beautiful way of embracing the truth that because God has a purpose for everything, it's possible for us to hope. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We haven't seen all there is to see yet. Therefore, we can have hope because there is a sovereign God who has purposes that are beyond what we know. See, hope is a result of knowing that there's a purpose, not a result of knowing what that purpose is. Right? That's knowledge. Knowledge and hope are different. They're not mutually exclusive, but knowledge means God has a purpose and I know what it is because he's told me. Hope is God has a purpose and I don't know what it is, but I trust him. I know he knows. Here's my, here's my really dangerous illustration of this. The Karate Kid. 1984. The Karate Kid won. Not like two and three and four. Those were all lame. But the original Karate Kid, which, I mean, this movie came out before half of you were born, so I'm kind of stretching here. But do you remember the Karate Kid? You remember this, right? Wax on, wax off, right? Okay, so Daniel goes to train with the great karate guru, Mr. Miyagi, and he says, how can I become a great fighter? And Mr. Miyagi says, well, I want you to wax my car. Here's how you do it. Wax on. 
with the right hand, wax off with the left hand, right? So Daniel spends all day waxing the car. He hasn't learned a thing about karate. He's frustrated. He comes and finally blows up and has a fit and says, what in the world are you making me do all this work for? You haven't taught me a thing about karate. And at that one scene in the movie, you find out all of a sudden, as Mr. Miyagi says, show me wax on, wax off, that what he's really done is he's taught him the basic moves of defensive karate. The trainer had a purpose in what he was doing, even though the one being trained didn't know what the purpose was. The fact that you don't know what the purpose is does not mean there isn't one. God is like that with us. He asks us to trust him. He says, I have purposes in the world. There are reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing. You may not know them. You may not see them. You may get frustrated wishing you knew more, but here's the good news trust. Because I have a purpose in what I'm doing in time and space and history. That's what allows us to have hope. Listen to me. I'm talking to a room full of people that are not strangers to difficulty. I'm talking to a room full of people who are not strangers to hardship, to pain, to suffering, to confusion, to situations in life that don't make sense and aren't what we would want. That's the story of almost every one of you in here. There were so many of those stories running through my head as I was praying over this sermon, I couldn't even keep track of them all. That's the the narrative we live. How do we live in difficult circumstances with hope? We live resting in the sovereignty of God. Resting not in the fixing of our circumstances right away the way we want, but rather resting in the knowledge that there is a sovereign God who knows what he's doing in the world, who loves us and is out for his glory and the good of his people, and therefore we can trust. That that breeds hope. And listen, the reason many people have no hope in our world is because the reigning worldview, the reigning plausibility structure in our culture is atheistic materialism. And what that worldview says is, there is no ultimate meaning or purpose in the universe. You're a random accident, a a result of chance and time and unguided biology, and therefore there's no meaning and there's no purpose and there's ultimately no hope. If that's the world you live in and you're having a hard week, you should despair because there's no point to it. There's no reason to your suffering. There's no way to make sense of the difficulty of your life. Aren't you glad you don't live in that world? Aren't you glad the actual world you live in, the actual universe that you reside in is governed by a good God who is sovereign and who knows what he's doing? And what that means is there is a purpose even in our suffering, even in our hardship, even in the difficult things in life. You may not see that purpose You may not know that purpose, but God wants you to rest assured that it is there and that he is worthy of your trust because he is sovereign. Here's the third implication of the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign over history, God's grace will prevail. Therefore, we can be courageous. Because of God's sovereignty, 
God's grace will prevail. And what that means is you and I can be courageous. Look at chapter 19, the end of it. You've already seen throughout this whole section, God is speaking oracles of judgment. These are oracles of God's judgment on sin and on rebellion and on the unbelieving, rebellious, idolatrous people. But look where all of that takes us, the end of chapter 19, verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the, middle, in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is a mind-blowing statement. What God is saying is, the pagans... The unbelievers, the idol worshipers, the nations that don't know me and don't care. That's who I'm after. I'm going to gather them into my people and they're going to be one people with my people Israel. Egypt, Assyria, Israel, together in worship. This is a massive promise. This is massively shaping to how we ought to see God's purposes in the world. Because what it means is God's grace is going to prevail. God will transform even the hardest hearts. God will prevail even in the most rebellious people. And it's not just here at the end of the passage. This theme, this idea is all the way through the passage. For instance, look at chapter 14, verse 1. God says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Listen, the good news of the gospel is God has always been about gathering people who aren't here yet. God has always been about gathering people who don't know him yet. God's purposes in the world are not for one people group or one ethnicity or one race or one cultural class or one socioeconomic group. God is out to gather a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation, including the ones you wish he wouldn't gather people from. Including the ones you're like, I wish they would just get a lightning bolt from heaven. Guess what? Here's why they don't. Because God wants them too. God's after a global, diverse people. His grace will prevail, and not even their rebellion and unbelief is going to stand in His way. What He's saying is, here's the good news. Your efforts in evangelism and proclaiming the gospel and talking to people about Jesus are not dependent on how articulate you are not. They're not dependent on how great a case you can make for the Christian worldview. They're not dependent on how much relational credibility you have with the people you're talking to. They're dependent on my grace. 
I'm going to gather a people for myself. Therefore, what this means is you can be courageous. Because God is sovereign over history, his grace will prevail. Therefore, you and I can be courageous. Isn't it true that in the world we live in, we're surrounded on all sides, as Israel was, by people who aren't just, you know, uninterested, but oftentimes actively opposed to God, to Christ, to redemption, to Christians, to anything that smells like Jesus. We don't live in a world that's like, oh great, that's nice that you believe that. We increasingly live live in a world where people want you to justify, why in the world would you believe in God? What gives you the right to tell me that I'm a sinner that needs to be saved? And isn't it true that when that's the world you live in, increasingly there's the temptation on your part to sort of, you know, keep your Christianity kind of behind your back? Keep the gospel sort of as your own personal private conviction? Keep the lordship of Jesus Christ as something that's sort of just, that's really about Sunday? It's not really about all of life? Isaiah wants to inspire in you some courage. <laughs> Isaiah is no stranger to living in a world where everybody around doesn't see things the same way. And what he's saying is, look, do you realize what God is doing in this world that you live in? You realize God's out to redeem people from Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Moab. God's going to gather people from all these nations. How do we know that? Because that's what he promised to Abraham in the first place. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. Therefore, Christian, listen to me. You can be courageous. God's doing what he's doing. Have some courage. Lean over the plate and take one for the team. Don't be a coward. Talk about the gospel. Pray for the people around you. Be active in talking about Jesus and inviting people to consider who he is. Be a good listener, engaging their questions, understanding how they see the world. The good news is God is going to gather people for himself from Assyria and from Egypt, from the secular student alliance and even from the religion department at Creighton. God's going to gather people for himself, even from your family. Those crazy people who think you're an idiot. Those are the kind of people God wants to gather to himself because his grace will prevail. You're not, you're not working for an impotent God who needs you to really persuade folks well. He's got his own divine strategies. He's sovereignly going to draw people to himself. And what he wants you to know is that means you and I can be courageous. Because God is sovereign over history, we can forgive, we can have hope, we can have courage. These are the results. These are the benefits. This is what a a true trust in the sovereignty of God ought to produce in the people of God. Deeper forgiveness, deeper hope, deeper courage. My friends, what I'm telling you is this is what it means to believe the gospel. Please do not think that believing the gospel means just believing what Jesus did on the cross when he died for my sins, and therefore I should be a really bitter, angry, unforgiving person who despairs and lacks hope and doesn't live with any courage in the world, but I love Jesus. Those things ought to seem to you, no, no, that doesn't fit fit together, right? 
People who love Jesus and are forgiven by him are caught up by Jesus into this people and this story and this great truth that is designed to produce in us deep forgiveness, deep hope, and deep courage. This is how we become this kind of people is by believing deeply in the good news of the gospel that God has given us. And the gospel is not merely the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, though it begins there. The gospel is all the redemptive truth in all of Scripture that that gives us access to. You're one of God's people. This truth is yours. This God is yours. This is who God is. And he says to you this morning, would you believe? Would you take me at my word? Would you see the reality of my sovereignty over history? Because when you see it, when you embrace it, it changes how you live tomorrow. Let's pray together. God, we as your people praise you this morning because you are sovereign over history. Thanks that this is not wishful thinking or some mythical fairy story. This is the truth of the world that we live in. There is a sovereign God standing over, guiding all of history to his appointed ends. And that's good news, God, because it means there's purpose, there's meaning, there's judgment and justice to come. Your grace will prevail. And so we pray this morning that you would make us increasingly a people who believe you and take you at your word, who are changed by all the good redemptive truth of the gospel that you've given us in Scripture. God, let us not be people who embrace the death and resurrection of Jesus and miss all the truth that that connects us to. Help us be people who live in light of the whole story, in light of the great massive goodness of who you are and all that you say about yourself. So God, would you make us, the people of Cormdale, more radically forgiving? Would you overcome the unforgiveness that's in our hearts? Would you make us, the people of Cormdale, more hopeful? Would you overcome the despair and the anxiety and the discouragement that slips in? Would you make us more courageous, a people who who courageously and boldly talk about you and listen well. Because we truly know that you're sovereign over history and that your grace will prevail. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And thank you that what Jesus has done for us is to welcome us into your family and unite us with you. Thanks that what we get in the gospel is you and you are a God who is sovereign and that changes everything. Help us to live in light of that truth this week. Amen.